Antic Heart, Chapter 4 Matthew and I leave early the next morning. We say goodbye to the household in the entrance hall of the house. Elizabeth gives us fresh bread and cheese wrapped in white cloth with a piece of ham, which she tells me strictly is for girl only. Hannah blushes and smiles at me while Thomas gives us both a strong handshake. Matthew will be with thee until just before thy next stop. He knows the roads well and will be able to avoid the thieves and beggars that ambush travellers. Where are we headed, Thomas? I ask. Thomas's face tightens a little. Best that thou dost not know just yet. Thou wilt find out soon enough. I can tell thee that thou art going to Canterbury today and will stay there overnight. Thank you for your hospitality, I say to the Lewises. I look forward to seeing you at the end of my mission. I feel emotional seeing these decent people who have aided me without hesitation. May God keep thee safe, lad, and bring thee success. Thomas says, and Elizabeth nods and says, Our prayers go with thee, Henry. Look after girl and be careful. I move to the door and Matthew follows. Two horses are ready for us in the stables by the side of the house. Mine is a handsome bay called Pim. He shuffles a little when he sees girl trotting behind me, but soon quietens when I stuff the little dog into the bag that's strapped across my chest. Matthew swings himself into the saddle of his piebald horse and waits while I get onto Pim's broad back. We make our way through the side gate of the house. Matthew pauses for a moment and looks both ways along the street. No one is around and so he leads me forward into the street. It is icy and our breath hangs mistily in the air. I am grateful for girls' warmth and the thick cloak around us. It's good there is a frost, he pronounces authoritatively. The road will be dry and easy to ride. I notice that he is more talkative now that we are alone together. And if we get bothered, I have this. He pulls out a pistol and shows it to me proudly. I'm not a Quaker, much as I admire Thomas. I will always protect myself. He does look useful, I realise, thankfully. I put my hand to my sword. Are you handy with that? Matthew asks patronisingly. You may think I'm young, Matthew, but I can use a sword as well as you, I'll wager. I've sent one assassin to hell with this blade. Matthew nods. 
Not just a pretty lad then. Good. We will avoid the places where we might get ambushed, but it is as well to be prepared. He rides ahead of me, his horse's hooves ringing on the frozen road. We ride out of the town, going upwards away from the centre, with the castle towering at our backs. We take the old Roman road, Watling Street, to Canterbury. In the old days, it was this road that the pilgrims took, coming from Dover to visit the shrine of Thomas Becket. Behind the settlement, the sun rises to our left, bathing the hills in rose-coloured light. To the right, we see agricultural land, for now bare and brown, and to the left, we see green hills, studded with groups of sheep, huddling together against the cold. We might ride through all the villages, Matthew said. We will not stop at an inn. Some of the innkeepers are in league with the highway robbers and tell them when we head off. So we will eat by the roadside and then continue straight to Canterbury. We get into Canterbury just as the sun is setting. It is still light enough to see that the town is prosperous with a number of neat, brick-built houses around and beyond the Buttermilk Square. I can see the cathedral, once the site of so many prayers, so much sacred music and beauty. Now the windows are smashed in, and Matthew tells me that the main nave has been used as stabling for horses. I hate to see this, I say, gesturing at the cathedral windows, which look like gouged out eyes. Papist relics, exclaims Matthew. We don't need them. You can worship God anywhere. But the devotion that went into them, I object. They went back hundreds of years. Why should we destroy them? Henry, they were the old days. King at the top, priest handing out his orders to the poor, people at the bottom. Times have changed, lad. I tell you, if we bring back Orlando, he will play by different rules. No hierarchy of the heavens any more. We spend the night at an inn used by carriers. It is basic but clean. And as Matthew says, the thieves will be targeting the people of means, not the working men. We will go unnoticed here, particularly now you're not in the clothes of the Parisian fashion. Indeed, I look like any labourer's son who has come up in the world due to an education. The three of us sleep in a room with four other men, all fully dressed except for our boots. It is very cold and each pallet bed has only one blanket. Girl curls up next to me under my cloak and his warmth is welcome. But I sleep poorly, kept awake by the snoring and the smells of the men. I also wonder where I am heading and what is coming next. So much depends on this, the king's cause, my standing in his court and my ability to make the money we all need. We breakfast early on stale bread and small ale and set out while it is still dark. We are headed for the high weald up into the hill country. There are few other travellers on the road at this time in the morning. As the sun rises, 
we start to see shepherds walking to their flocks, messengers riding their horses hard to reach London with the letters they are carrying. But we're going at a steady pace. My horse, Pim, is well within his limits and still fresh after hours of riding. But Matthew's horse is older and slower. Girl enjoys the journey, sniffing the air and rolling ecstatically on the turf whenever we take a break. By mid-afternoon, Matthew takes a turn off the road onto a dirt track leading further up into the hills. It is getting dark, but the horses know where they are going, picking their way silently up the path. After half an hour, we reach a hut, perched on the side of the downs. We sleep here tonight, Matthew says, leading his horse into the hut. Inside, there is fresh straw to sleep on and a cloth parcel containing bread and cheese. Matthew lights a fire and we sit beside it and talk into the night. Matthew tells me about the campaigns of the Civil War, the disappointment of Edgehill, and then the hard work which had led to victories at Naseby and Marston Moor. Throughout it all, he had been a strong parliamentarian. So why are you helping me now? I ask. I've put my life in his hands, and it is strange that I should trust someone I think of as being an enemy. Thomas, he answers, I was wounded with no money. My family were destitute. None of my former officers helped me. It was Thomas. I have every faith in him. I know how his people have been persecuted. And like him, I decided that toleration of religion was the only way to further the equality of all men. I've no love for kings. But in Oliver Cromwell, we now have another king in all but name. Ambition has brought him to where he is now, and I don't trust ambitious men. He pauses and looks into the fire. Now about you, Henry? What brings you to work for the king? In turn, I tell him an edited history of my past, my father's death and the need for me to support my mother. He understands loyalty, he tells me. We sleep soundly, despite the humble surroundings, the silence as absolute as the darkness. The next morning, we are on the road again early, riding over the weald until later on, we drop down to the small settlement of Tunbridge. There are a few small habitations there and a fresh water spring. Matthew tells me people come to drink the waters in the summer. Just after the spring, Matthew pulls up his horse and bids me goodbye. Another hour's riding and you'll be at your journey's end, he says. You're going to Penshurst Place, the house of the Earls of Leicester. But it's not the Earl you need to ask for. It's his wife's sister, Lucy, Countess of Carlisle. She is expecting a young man who has been recommended to her as a secretary to aid her in writing her life story. Matthew smiles. Lucy Carlyle's an old woman now, but she's had a wild life. A young man like you could learn a thing or two for sure.
I continue to ride through the Kentish countryside. The frost has eased, but it is raining now, and I can feel the wetness of my heavy cloak wrapped around me and girl who stirs uncomfortably every now and then. Although I hate the cold, I hate the damp more, and I curse the fate that has brought me to England in January. Why is it that the land of my birth, the most beautiful place in the world in May, is the most grim, muddy and wet in January? It takes longer than I expect to reach Penshurst Place, mainly because Pym has to pick his way carefully along the muddy track, avoiding the deepest and most slippery stretches of it. At last I see it, a mile or so away, surrounded by farmland and what looks like a deer park. It is a pleasant house, of some antiquity. Built of stone, there are parts that remind me of the castles of long ago, before houses were built to live in, rather than to defend. Of course, during the Civil War, castles had again been useful, although even the sturdiest was at risk from the powerful cannons we use now. But I remember that Penshurst had never been attacked in the war, mainly because the Earl of Leicester had absented himself from the conflict and gone back home. I know he has accepted parliamentary rule, and I wonder again if I'm riding into a trap. Of course, it is the Countess of Carlisle I have come to see, and I hope the household will accept my story, at least until I can move on. I reach the gatehouse and speak to the man there. I tell him that I have been sent to work as a secretary to the Countess of Carlisle, and he stifles a smile. Ah, fit young fellow you are, sir, he says. Her ladyship will have fun with you. He directs me up the drive to the main entrance to the hall and the stables just to one side of it. I dismount and lead Pym to the stables. I can tell he is tired and the sight of fresh hay makes him whinny. Girl pricks up his ears and gives a little yelp too. I shush him and push him further down in my bag. A boy comes up to greet me, wiping his hands on an old rag. I'll take your horse, sir. And give him some hay. I hand Pim over to him, thanking him as I do so. Then I walk out of the stables and up the path to the great door to the house, which opens as I approach it. A supercilious man stands there, looking down his nose at me. I assume he is a manservant, but he acts as though he is the lord of the manor. My name is Henry Nash. I'm here to see the Countess of Carlisle, I inform him. I've come to work for her. The man snorts. God in heaven knows how she'll pay you, he says. It won't be the Earl of Leicester, I can tell you. Still, if you want to see her, I can show you up. But remember, lad, she's got no money. I followed him through the hall and up the richly carved staircase to the first floor. We walk through a couple of rooms, made beautiful with tapestries and fine plaster work. The man then stops at a large oak door and tells me to wait outside. He knocks, opens the door and goes through. I wait, 
fidgeting with my heavy waterlogged cloak. Girl stirs again and makes a pitiful attempt to debark. I feel sorry for my little dog and stroke him. The top of his head is heavy with water, as is mine. The servant reappears. You may go in now, young man, he says, and then announces me formally. Master Henry Nash, your ladyships. I emerge into a large, brightly lit hall with a huge fire blazing in the fireplace. At the end of the hall, sitting in a corner made domestic with stools and tables, sewing baskets and packets of cards, sit two ladies. One is sitting embroidering a piece of silk. She looks like a countrywoman with her grey curly hair and ruddy cheeks. But the other is wearing a green silk court dress, a bit out of date. I imagine she wore it first in the 1620s. Her hair is bright auburn and it is dressed in ringlets falling to her shoulders. She's wearing a mask that covers the top half of her face. There are lines around her lips that I notice every time she sucks on the clay pipe that she holds. The smell of tobacco wafts comfortably over to me, mixed with musk. I bow deeply to both of them individually. The manservant introduces me. Dorothy, Countess of Leicester, he says, gesturing grandly towards the grey-haired woman. And Lucy, Countess of Carlisle. They both acknowledge me politely, but unenthusiastically. Then the Countess of Carlisle suddenly lays down her clay pipe. But you have a puppy, young man, she cries out. Poor lamb, he will be drowned in that weather. Bring him to me immediately. She beckons to me imperiously. Here, he must go beside the fire to dry out. I take girl out of my bag and walk forwards with him, my feet squelching in my boots. Lucy Carlyle gets up and comes over to me. Give him to me, she orders, and comes up close with her arms outstretched. Oh, little boy, where have you come from? I reply to her as softly as I can. I am from Dover, madam, from Thomas Lewis. She taps my hand with hers and whispers, Later, as she grabs girl from me. She cries out now, Poor little man, has your master got you wet? She carries girl and places him by the fire. Fetch me some meat and some water, she says to the servant, who bows and exits the room. She coos at girl. We can't have you getting hungry now, can we, my sweet? Then she gestures at a stall. Sit down, young man, and tell us how you came upon this little angel. Why, he is a poodle, is he not? His grandsire was Prince Rupert's dog, I inform her. She nods, picks up her pipe and relights it before sucking in another puff. Her sister looks disapproving, but her voice is animated and her earrings swing as her head turns towards me. 
I remember Boy, she says, a fine dog and devoted to his master. So, Master Nash, you have interesting connections. But tell me, how are your skills as a secretary? I don't know why you need a secretary, Lucy, said the grey-haired Countess of Leicester. You have nothing of any worth to write about. There's not a court any more, so you can't show off. You have no property to speak of, no issue. In fact, all you do is drink and smoke. Lucy Carlyle laughs throatily <laughs> and gestures with her pipe at her sister. Ah, but I can still irritate you, dear sister, and that makes my life interesting. Again, she relights the pipe and sucks at it merrily. I am going to write my memoirs, she announces, and young master Henry Nash can be my scribe. I will recline upon my great bed and he will record my history. The Countess of Leicester looks at her sourly. History? I'm surprised you want to publicise it. What is your life but a succession of love affairs and changing sides? Aha! But better than a cold marriage bed! Lucy crows at her sister, who shrugs her shoulders and acknowledges the truth of what she says. Do what you wish, Lucy. But times are different now. Who wants to read about love affairs and spying? We're all Puritans now. But so many are like you, Lucy Carlyle replies. You and Philip have made your allegiance to Parliament. You will admit that you don't really believe in the cause. You just did it to keep your estates, which you have done. Better than being imprisoned in the Tower of London for insurrection, Dorothy, the Countess of Leicester, retorts. You should be grateful to the Count of Leicester and me. It was us who got you out. We could not have done that without our continuing position in society. Dorothy, I will always be grateful to you and Philip for your help and for sheltering me at Penshurst. Lucy says in a voice that teeters on the edge of tears. We're family, Lucy, but don't push your luck. No more plot plotting. That is the deal. Lucy nods gracefully. Yes, Dorothy, I understand, she says pacifically. But I notice that she doesn't actually say that she accepts her sister's terms. The door opens and the manservant returns with a haunch of beef and a bowl of water, which she sets down for girl. No, no, Lucy cries. You cannot give that to the pup. It is larger than he is. Take it back and cut some morsels off. Make them small. Oh, and you could bring some bread and cheese for my friend Henry here and take his cloak. Did you not notice he is soaked? At last, my cloak is removed and taken to be hung in front of the kitchen fire. Lucy bids me to pull up a stool and sit beside them. I obey, and soon I am eating hungrily and drinking a large flagon of beer. 
Meanwhile, Girl is eating small portions of meat from a pewter plate on the floor beside him. Later, I am shown to my room, where a small basket has been placed ready for Girl. I reflect that in all my travel so far, Girl has been more welcome than I have. But my bed is soft and comfortable, and the room is warmed by a small fire. Girl ignores the basket and whimpers until I take him into bed with me. He snuggles into the crook of my arm and soon starts to snore. Exhausted, we both sleep deeply. The next morning, I present myself to Lucy, Countess of Carlisle, ready to start my duties. She is, as she had said, reclining in a large four-poster bed. She does not wear her mask, but her face is shaded by the long green velvet curtains that are only partially open. She wears a fine woolen dressing gown lined with fur, and her hair is not arranged as it was yesterday, but hanging around her face loosely. She gestures at Girl. He can sleep beside me, poor little lamb, she coos. She pats the bed beside her and I hand the little dog over, who immediately settles comfortably. For a moment, Lucy fusses over the pup, but then she sits up straight and her voice becomes steely and businesslike. Henry, check the doors, she orders. We do not want anyone to overhear. Obediently, I open both doors and look into the rooms next door. There's nobody there, I say. Good. Leave them both open so that we can hear if anyone approaches. I do as she instructs. Now sit. She points at a chair pulled up against the desk where there is paper, a pot of ink and quills. Right, you will work here with me for the next few months. She laughs throatily. <laughs> so I hope that you are indeed a good secretary. I am certainly that, madam. But I understood that my task would be somewhat different, I say hesitantly. Oh, Henry, do not be so impatient. You have another task, I know. But we have to establish you as my man. You will visit other ladies at times, as I require you to do. We are close to London, and there are plenty of lonely ladies that I know. But first, we have to build your identity. We want for you to be one of those anonymous young men that people get used to seeing without ever really noticing. You will have good credentials coming from the Earl of Leicester's household. Yes, I know I am known as a plotter, but my brother-in-law is well respected. He will be your cover. At this, she chuckles. Poor Philip, he must never know about this, nor should Dorothy. They are good people, but too attached to a quiet life. Me, I cannot help it. I have dedicated myself to Orlando. I am disappointed, but I can see that she speaks sense. 
and so I resigned myself to my new role as her secretary. One day, she tells me, her memoirs will be published and her history known. I know that she served Queen Henrietta Maria as a lady-in-waiting for many years. I learn that she married James Carlyle for love, then fell out of love into friendship. She had an affair with King Charles I's favourite, the Duke of Buckingham, then the Earl Strafford, both now dead. Then she had fallen for John Pym, the cleverest of the parliamentarian party, before changing her mind again and intriguing to bring back the present king, Charles II, back to England and his throne. Could she be trusted? Probably not. Was she useful? Undoubtedly so, with all of her contacts in both parliamentary and royalist circles. So I bide my time. Every morning I work with the Countess Lucy Carlyle, writing her memoirs as she dictates them. I sometimes write letters for her, which she will send me to deliver to addresses in London. I never stay overnight, always returning to Penshurst by the evening. Girl grows large and runs up and down the great gallery, twisting and turning like a woolly whirligig. Lucy Carlyle likes him, and he often stays with her, being fed titbits from her table, drinking milk from a saucer, and snoozing underneath her skirts. But when I go out in the afternoon to walk around the estate, he comes with me, sniffing at the ground ecstatically, chasing blackbirds, and swimming in the streams that run through the woods nearby. I meet the Earl of Leicester, whose frowning face and gruff words make the servants scurry to do his bidding. When he is at the house, he spends most of his time in his study. I can understand this, as he obviously dislikes his wife Dorothy and detests his sister-in-law Lucy. He shows no interest in me, assuming that I am just one of the hangers-on that Lucy has attracted all of her life. Indeed, having given recognisance for her bail from the Tower of London, he seems to have decided that his best course of action from now on is to simply ignore her. One morning in May, I arrive at the Countess's room to find the windows wide open, letting the spring sunshine stream in. She is not lying on the bed, but sitting in front of a mirror, fixing her hair. I can see her face clearly for the first time. She has fine pink and white skin, with a few lines around her blue-green eyes. On her forehead are a few faint pockmarks from the smallpox which she had when she was younger. I wonder why she always wears a mask in company, as she is more beautiful than many a young maid. Good morning, Henry. I have a job for you, she trills, then turns back to her hair. I stand by the desk waiting for her. I've never seen her like this before. She's almost girlish as she turns to me. Henry, how do I look? She stands up and twirls around in her azure blue silk dress in front of me. I know that Puritan standards of dress 
are common in London. But what is there to stop Lucy from reliving her glories in private? Madam, you're a sea nymph inviting men to their doom, I say, suppressing a smile. Lucy chuckles. Henry, as if I would bring men to their doom, she cries coquettishly. Why, I am an old lady now. No one looks at me any more. I play the game. I look at you, madam, and now I can see your eyes. I am drowning in them. She holds out her hand to me, acknowledging my courtesy. I take it and kiss it. Her skin is soft and smells of orange flowers and sandalwood. She allows me to linger for a moment and then withdraws. By God, you are good at your job, Henry. Such a charming boy, but inside you're quite cool. She looks at me challengingly. You will drown in no one's eyes, my lad, for there is something very different about you. She touches my shoulder and I bend down and give her lips a kiss, sweet and short. She is lovely and I am tempted, but I know that there are lines I must not cross. Yes, you see, there is that about you. You are never overtaken by emotion. There is something different about you, Henry. I sense it. I don't know what it is, but I will find out in time. She reaches up and kisses me on the lips again. I want her. This time I stay, breathing in her musky scent. I put my arms around her, crushing her soft breasts against my chest. She sighs and hangs her arms around my neck. This sweetness, this wanting, I haven't known for a long time. What was it I wanted? Love, I suppose. And I know it isn't possible. She has the same thought, and we spring apart, grinning at each other. But you are totally delicious, and all the ladies will love you, she says. And although I am vexed to do it, I've told Orlando you will be starting your first job for us within days. You're in contact with Orlando, I exclaimed. I didn't know. She laughs and shakes her head. No need to tell you until we were sure of you. Of course I am in contact with Orlando. We correspond in code. I give my message to the maidservant who takes them to the market with her. She then passes them on to a trader who is our messenger. Who is the trader? I ask. There is no need for you to know, Henry. But what you should know is that Orlando has given his consent for you to start operations. Orlando knows. Of course he knows, she snorts. He has been watching you for some time. You will be employed by a Mistress Pettigrew of Bishopsgate Street in London. Her husband was very wealthy, sadly now deceased. She needs a secretary to sort out his papers. Be warned, she has a son who is very protective of his mother. However, 
He is a soldier in the parliamentary army and very often away. So why, Mistress Pettigrew, I demand, what makes her a likely target for my attentions? Lucy smiles wickedly. Why, she is a widow and known for opposing her husband's taking the parliamentary side. Oh, it was years ago and they parted. But then, as good wives do, she submitted to her husband. She twinkles and I get the impression that she had not been a good wife. When you see her, you will see a respectable matron dressed in black. Her linen is impeccably clean and very plain. She is the model of a Puritan's widow. So she doesn't seem like a good prospect now, I object. Ah, Henry, but I have it on good authority that she has a handkerchief that was dipped in King Charles's blood as he died on the scaffold. I've heard of such mementos. At the execution, many in the crowd had surged forward to have their own relic of a martyr's blood. To me, it is a gruesome business. Lucy continues. Poor woman, she was almost certainly gulled. There are enough blood-stained handkerchiefs to fill the Thames with blood. But the fact remains, she sleeps with this handkerchief underneath her pillow. How do you know this? I demand. She steps forward and puts her finger on my lips. Her eyes are sparkling and she looks about 18. She is plotting rebellion again and it suits her. Peace, Henry. You know I cannot tell you that. I will send you with a letter of introduction and then it is up to you.